is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. On the menu for today's show, the guessing game is on. Who will President Biden nominate to the Supreme Court? Justice Stephen Breyer announcing his retirement. Now it is up to the president to select a replacement. Mr. Biden has already said that he would nominate a black woman. The White House today says he is standing by that. We'll go in depth into the person he may pick. But Senate Republicans could stand in the way of any nominee. Will Mitch McConnell and the other Republicans put up a fight? And what about the Democrats? The Federal Reserve signaling today it is going to raise a key interest rate. Can the stock market finally stabilize? Booster shots never really caught on here. We were saying the other day, everyone who has the third thinks everybody else does, but that's not true. And the rates are actually kind of dropping day by day of people who are getting them. So we'll talk about that later on. Some pharmacies out there telling the immunocompromised they can't get their fourth, even though the CDC says that's okay for them. If you're struggling to lose weight, but you're still eating healthy, the problems might be in the containers you're using for the, the food and the, the beverages. Yeah. If you, if you, what, if you eat the containers? No, don't eat the plastic. Okay. But it's but about plastic. It's, it's, okay, we'll get into that. Okay. And then uh, what's going to happen to the Snow White and the Seven Dwarves movie uh, following the critical comments from actor Peter Dinklage? And we will talk about that at the end of the show. Let's start, though, with the retirement of Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer. With us now is legal analyst and constitutional attorney Jeffrey Lewis. Jeffrey, thanks for being with us. So how significant is this in the greater scheme of things? He's a liberal justice, although, as you know, I mean, he certainly has has sided at times with the more moderate, even conservative wing of the court. Is the president likely then to pick somebody who is even more to the left? Well, it is historically significant if he fulfills his campaign promise of nominating a female African-American to serve on the court. It would be a first. But as you point out, it is not really significant in the sense that it's not going to change the ideological bent or, 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 or of the court because any, any nominee is likely to be just as liberal as uh, the retiring justice. Yeah, and the, the conservative majority right now is having their kind of blockbuster season or term as we go into this uh, this next one here. So what do we know about the people who are on the, the short list? Because there's always a short list. Every administration has one. Right. The three names that are being floated around are uh, Michelle Childs, who's a district judge of, uh, out of Southern, Cal- uh, Southern Carolina, who's been uh, nominated but not yet confirmed to a higher court. And then uh, Leandra Kruger in my state, uh, Justice of the California Supreme Court, who's never gone through the confirmation process in the U.S. Senate. And then U.S. Circuit Judge uh, Kitani Brown-Jackson of the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia. A lot of people are, are often surprised to find out that in order to be a Supreme Court justice, you don't have to have been a judge. You don't even have to be an attorney, right? Is there a possibility that there's another candidate out there, perhaps another uh, black female, who is not a lawyer, not on the, on the court, but would make a really good Supreme Court justice? It is theoretically possible, but I don't think likely. I think just uh, that President Biden wants smooth sailing. His poll ratings are low. He is likely to pick somebody who's already gone through and survived a Senate confirmation process. And that's another reason that there was so much pressure on Justice Breyer, right? Not only was he getting up there in years and people had wanted him to retire, but, you know, the Senate could flip. And then also this administration, it needs a win and confirming a young liberal justice is a win for people. 
Yeah, that's right. That's right. And by the way, there's no guarantee with only 50 uh, members of the Senate uh, being Democrats, if just one of those Democrats defects, there's no guarantee that uh, uh, President Biden will have his pick unless he is pick somebody that might garner some Republican support. People also like to think uh, that Supreme Court justices are, you know, that it's kind of a really a very clean process. There's no politics involved. But in fact, do these potential candidates lobby or, or, or do what politicians would do in order to get people to vote for them? Yeah, absolutely. Or more likely, the proxies, people who have interests in having uh, their particular favorite candidate go through the process. So if there are uh, prominent politicians who favor Childs, Kruger or Jackson, you can expect those proxies will be lobbying the president. People making their calls. Uh, legal analyst <laughs> yeah. and constitutional attorney Jeffrey Lewis. Jeffrey, thanks. We are continuing our discussion about the retirement, announced reti- retirement of Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer. It's now up to President Biden to select a nominee, but will Senate Republicans try to thwart his pick? Can they? With us is Harris Alex, congressional reporter for The Washington Times. Harris, thanks for being with us. So uh, I don't know. I mean, the Republicans, uh, it, it's a uh, still a Democratic-controlled uh, Senate with uh, the vice president being able to break the tie. Is there much the Republicans can really do? Thank you guys for having me on today. Uh, you're absolutely right. It is a Democratic-controlled uh, Senate very, very narrowly, but the vice president does break the tie. So it would be very, very, very difficult for Republicans to be able to fight this tooth and nail and to eventually obstruct the nomination from going through or, or uh, for President Biden's nominee to be confirmed. However, uh, obviously, because it is narrow control, the Senate, crazy things do happen. And as we saw uh, with both the Build Back Better Act and uh, President Biden's push to blow up the Senate filibuster, a lot of moderate Democrats can actually come out and, you know, could, could potentially be swing votes here. And people right now are looking seriously at Senator Joe Manchin and Senator Kristen Sienema of, of Arizona, because any nomination is going to have to obviously go through them. Senate Republicans, I think, from the conversations that I've had, um, are taking a wait and see approach right now. There isn't really a um, massive incentive to fight a nominee tooth and nail unless they're very controversial or unless they're seen as really radical, simply because there's already a 6-3 majority on the Supreme Court that leans towards the conservatives. Uh, Breyer's retirement uh, won't really do anything to impact that at all. And the Republicans feel good that the court will still be in their direction no matter what. And I think um, there's just kind of the, the reality right now that Republicans also face, which is that, again, it would be very, very difficult to uh, obstruct a and prevent a nominee from being confirmed. And they also kind of realize that you know, there's still a lot of time here for even if uh, this initial nominee to fail for President Biden to nominate another one. Uh, one of the big issues that we saw in 2018, obviously, with the Brett Kavanaugh nomination was that there was a very closely contested Senate race coming up uh, for control of the chamber coming up in 2018. And that nomination was sometime around, I think, like August that they put him up. So had Democrats delayed that, obviously, you know, things could have been different. But now if you delay it, I mean, you know, you've got most of the rest of the year to push someone through if Democrats really want to. So I think timing is, is a big factor. I think the realities of the Senate are a big factor. I think just the realities of what the current uh, court being made uh, six to three is, is, is a big factor as well. So I think Republicans are maybe looking at, you know, gearing up for a fight provided the nominee is controversial or radical enough, but it is a uh, it certainly faces quite a lot, a lot of long odds. Yeah, but let's take the mansion and cinema factor then, because so much is made about them not being on board. But that was really legislation. I mean, they've been pretty lockstep on nominees so far. Sure, absolutely, and I think uh, Senator Sienema is probably going to be uh, 
the one who sticks with uh, Democrats the most on this because she's already, you know, uh, made some comments about being concerned about the direction of the court has gone uh, since President Trump's nominees essentially handed uh, the court over to uh, the conservative majority. Uh, you know, she's been very, very vocal about the issue of abortion. She's been vocal about the issue of guns. Uh, she's been vocal about a lot of different issues. And it's something that I think it would be very, very difficult for her to oppose uh, with any type of nominee that Biden puts up. Manchin, however, is a different case. Uh, you know, he uh, never really voted for any of the, of the uh, Obama nominees because he came into the Senate about, I think, 2009, 2010. Um, he supported some of the Trump nominees, most uh, famously uh, Neil Gorsuch and uh, uh, Kavanaugh, but then he also opposed uh, Amy, Cor uh, Amy Coney Barrett. So I think everyone is going to be looking at Manchin, kind of figuring out where he stands right now. He just put out a statement recently saying that he would uh, take his advice and consent uh, responsibilities as a senator very, very seriously. He's not leaning one way or the other as of right now. I think a lot of this is going to depend on how strong the uh, how strong the uh, the nominee is seen as back home in West Virginia, because Manchin is up for re-election in 2024. I keep wondering how we ended up in this uh predicament, and it is a predicament that one senator, in this case, Manchin, seems to be, in some respects, running the country. I mean, he gets to be the <laughs> one who disproportionately decides on legislation that goes to the Congress. Do whatever Joe Manchin yeah, Right. And, and now he may have a, a, a disproportionate voice in the nominee that the president selects for the Supreme Court. How did that end up happening anyway? Well, obviously, uh, the Senate's filibuster rules have kind of been eroded over time. Uh, Democrats first uh, transformed the rules back in 2013 to essentially allow uh, lower court judicial nominees and, and cabinet level nominees to be able to go through uh, with a simple majority, which is usually 51 votes. Previously, they needed about 60 votes. In 2017, Republicans changed the, uh, the threshold further for Supreme Court nominees. Um, and, you know, this was always going to be the case, especially when you have a polarized country. And the Senate is a very, very different institution because you know, there are only two senators per state. It's not necessarily uh, ranked by population like the House. The majorities are always, you know, going to necessarily be tenuous. Uh, and essentially, when they, when both Republicans and Democrats change the filibuster rules, you know, they empowered uh, one or two senators to always make a stand. Now, granted, even under the old rules, senators were still able to make a stand. But uh, in an evenly divided Senate, it's it's incredibly more uh, uh, imperative for uh, lawmakers to you know, have their little moment in the sun and, you know, be able to shape a president's agenda because you don't run for the Senate un unless you want to have some influence, unless you want to have some power over the national debate. And when uh, when both Republicans and Democrats did erode those Senate rules, you know, they created the perfect opportunity because Joe Manchin is never going to be president, but he can essentially function as a mini president from the Senate or he can essentially exert massive influence on the president's agenda from the Senate. And that's a post that I think you're going to see become uh, increasingly more prevalent from lawmakers in the future if you do continue to have, you know, narrowly divided control. Harris Alec, congressional reporter for The Washington Times. Well, coming up, should Snow White and the Seven Dwarves be canceled? A popular actor's comments over a remake has Disney scrambling. And uh, are you counting calories and watching what you eat but still are not losing weight? If so, it might not be your fault. It might be plastic. 
right now the stock market has been shaky lately, mostly, mostly on a downward trend, uh, impacting everybody's portfolios and 401ks. Today, the Fed indicated it plans to begin raising the key interest rate as soon as March. Is this going to calm a jittery Wall Street and uh, build back our retirement funds? Ryan Sweet, Senior Director of Economic Research at Mooney's Analytics. Ryan, thanks for being with us. So uh, we've had the roller coaster this week. Things were going good today. Then the Fed opened its mouth and things dropped, which is usually what happens when the Fed talks. But what did we get today? Well, we got a very well-crafted FOMC statement, uh, which is released after the meeting, that pulled off exactly what the Fed wanted, signaling that a rate hike is most likely to come in March. It's time to dial back monetary policy accommodation. Basically, it's time to take the training wheels off the economy. The issue came when Fed Chair Powell began to speak, and he was much more hawkish than what was implied by the statement. So you saw bond yields react. You saw the stock market react. And Powell's comments really keep on the table a much more aggressive uh, Fed this year than what markets are already uh, penciling in. Okay, so what you're saying, I think, is that earlier in the morning when the market was going up, it was because investors were already anticipating what the Fed was going to do. And then they what? They they got kind of surprised by the, the tone or the uh, comments that Powell made? Is that it? That's spot on. So right after the meeting, we got sort of a, a relief rally in the equity markets because the statement was exactly basically what markets were anticipating. And then Powell came out much more hawkish, meaning that, you know, he's kind of on board with maybe if the economy warrants it, raising rates more aggressively than what uh, investors were anticipating. Don't they, uh, just a quick question, don't they coordinate? I mean, why didn't, why didn't he just like, you know, zip it? Well, usually he, he you got to give him credit. Usually he does a pretty good job. I mean, every Fed chair kind of has their foot and mouth moments. You know, Yellen had it. Bernanke had it. Powell had one, you know, uh, early on when he was Fed chair. This time around, it was more, uh, you know, I think that statement that he'll regret looking back on this is saying that the economy is much different this time around than when they began raising rates in 2015. Now, it's factually correct. Uh, but then he followed that up with saying we could raise rates a lot before we begin to damage the labor market. And to markets, that's in, then we are going to have a much more aggressive Fed than we thought after the FOMC statement. They didn't like the word a lot. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, they have to do something, and this we know, right? Because we do have all this inflationary pressure. But exactly. They should be dialing back. You know, basically, the economy doesn't need all this monetary policy accommodation. Powell's right. The labor market's made a lot of progress. We're not fully healed yet, uh, but we have an inflation issue. And some of those inflation problems are supply chain issues, higher energy prices. Uh, but it's time for the Fed to start, you know, having it back under control. But something to keep in mind is that no matter what the Fed does this year with interest rates, it's not going to affect inflation this year. Changes in monetary policy affect inflation with what I commonly say, uh, long and variable lag. So basically, a rate hike in March might start to affect inflation early next year. Ryan Sweet, Senior Director of Economic Research, Moody's Analytics. Ryan, thanks. You're listening to KNX In-Depth along with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Scientists and doctors saying the key to avoiding or minimizing Omicron's impact is to get that booster shot. But uh, a couple problems with that, because not that many people actually got them. And then uh, the momentum for them has kind of been petering out.
The uh, CDC says just about 40 percent of fully vaccinated Americans have received their booster dose. And a new poll from the Associated Press and an ORC Center for Public Affairs Research finds that Americans are more likely to see the initial vaccinations rather than a booster as essential. With us is Dr. John Swartzberg, who is a clinical professor emeritus at UC Berkeley's School of Public Health. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So is this a matter, as has been the case, unfortunately, for the past two years, now going on three of the pandemic, of just bad messaging? Is, is it that people are not getting the right message about boosters? I think you're right. I think, I think our messaging could have been better and should be better. And I think there's too much misinformation and disinformation about the vaccines. And that compounds the problem as well. So was it the debate among people whether they were needed that was the problem initially? Because there were a lot of doctors at the outset saying before, you know, Delta and Omicron, all this came around, who were saying, yeah, I don't know if these are actually needed. And then what is it? Is that the problem? Or is it that we say booster and not third dose? Like, hey, we're turning these from two into three. You actually have to complete the series combination of. Yeah, I think all of those are, are valid. You know, I've, I've spent my entire career um, with the scientific process. And it's one that I'm really used to. And what it's like is that we read articles or we do research and we find something that indicates something. And then that gets refuted or at least modified. And it's a very slow and arduous process where we take about three steps forward and then we take a couple steps back and so on. And, you know, I'm very used to that. Um, but our society's not used to that. That's not really the process by which people are living their day-by-day lives. And so with the CDC, for example, um, as new information comes, new advice is given, and what the public sees is, well, hey, that wasn't the advice you told us about three months ago. And that's been the process since the beginning of this pandemic. And it's been seen in spades with um, the advice about vaccination. You know, originally it was one dose and then another one three to four weeks, and that should be fine. And then we learned, well, the immunity to those two doses fades and that we need a booster. At least some of us need a booster, then all of us needed a booster. And then the question would be, how long is that booster going to last? So it's been a it's been really tough for everybody because as our knowledge expands, um, our advice changes. But that leads to, uh, that leads to confusing the public. And unfortunately, a lot of people, for very nefarious reasons, reasons take advantage of that confusion and lend more confusion by the misinformation they promulgate. Well, there's, I, I think you're right, but there's also, I think, the sense that a lot of the public has, rightly or wrongly, that that politics is getting involved in what should be an otherwise purely scientific equation. And let's take the CDC with whether you need to have a, a booster or, as Mike pointed out before, just call it a it's a three dose, maybe at some point a four dose vaccine. We have other vaccines that require two, three, I think even four doses. And there's no hesitation at all about saying that that's what's required, three, four doses. And yet there's this sense, I think, that the CDC is kind of being a little gun shy about this because they're they're cognizant of the politics in the nation and they don't want to go out on a limb and say, yeah, you know what, you really need to have three of these things. 
Yeah, I think that's also an, an excellent point. The CDC has um, been more reactive than proactive, unfortunately. And I think that that um, is a stance that, that really needs to change. And I think that would, that would help if it was the case. But I also recognize that there's no such thing as just pure science. There's no such thing as pure anything. Politics gets insinuated in just about everything. I think one of the great tragedies of this pandemic from the American perspective has been that um, this pandemic has been politicized in every conceivable way it could be. Um, The idea that masks are political is, I mean, I think it's not going to be too long in the future when we're going to look back and say, that's the epitome of idiocy. Um, So I think that um, the politicization of of all of the issues, including the vaccine, um, is absurd on its face and just tragic in the consequences. Dr. John Schwartzberg, clinical professor emeritus, UC Berkeley's School of Public Health. Doctor, thanks. Some people who are immune compromised have been angry lately. They say pharmacies have been telling them no when they show up to get a fourth COVID shot, which the CDC is saying they should get, right? Yeah, they say it's okay for the fourth for this group of people because of waning immunity, and maybe the first three didn't take as well uh, as if your immune system was robust. So with us is Dr. Richard Dang, president of the California Pharmacists Association, and Dr. Michael Hogue, dean of the School of Pharmacy at Loma Linda University, former president of the American Pharmacists Association. Thanks to you both. So, uh, Dr. Dang, how is it that some of these pharmacies out there uh, seem confused and are turning people away? Yeah, so I I think uh, when you look at the CDC guidelines, it is clear that individuals who are immunocompromised should be receiving a fourth dose as a part of their booster series. However, I think that the CDC guidelines could be a little bit confusing for both pharmacies and consumers alike, because the recommendations do differ depending on which brand of vaccine you receive, whether it's Moderna, Pfizer, or Johnson & Johnson. And there's also potentially some confusion with patients regarding what is defined as immunocompromised conditions. Dr. Hogue, uh, do you think it's because the pharmacies that are not giving the fourth shot to those who say they're immunocompromised, is it because they're afraid of some sort of liability? Because there's certainly no shortage of COVID vaccines, not anymore. We're we're practically being flooded with them around the country because not enough people are unfortunately getting vaccinated or getting booster shots. So what's the reason they would care? Yeah, I don't think pharmacists are uh, intentionally withholding it. I think it's just a case of uh, information is coming so rapidly uh, that, uh, frankly, many pharmacists have just not been able to keep up to date. I mean, the reality that we're facing right now uh, that I think everyone has to recognize and, and, and have some patience with is the fact that we have severe staffing shortages in community pharmacies around the country, um, shortages of pharmacy technicians and pharmacists, and it's getting quite severe. And in addition to that, you know, the, the ACIP, the CDC's uh, uh, 
uh, committee that meets and makes recommendations on uh, immunizations has met three times more often in the last year than they normally meet in a year, has put out uh, probably four to five times more recommendations than ever before. And the volume of information that's coming out uh, and, and when you're in a, in a shortage situation in terms of personnel, it makes it very difficult to keep up. So no excuses, but it's understandable, certainly, why this is happening. Dr. Dang, you mentioned something which is, you know, someone coming in and saying, and, and there's a lot of attestation going on, but when it comes to, you know, being immunocompromised, is there actually any concrete definition list that's gone out? Because it could either be, you know, medical conditions or you're on immunosuppressing drugs. Uh, it can vary widely. Absolutely. The CDC does define uh, individuals who are considered to be immunocompromised for this purpose. And that would primarily be, like you mentioned, individuals who might be taking certain medications, individuals who received transplant before, who have active uh, HIV infection or other uh, rare uh, conditions. What I found sometimes speaking with individuals is they think they have immunocompromised conditions because they have conditions like diabetes or high blood pressure, but that's actually not the case for that definition. Dr. Hogue, what's the solution? And you kind of touched on it, I think both of you did, about messaging. But does more need to be done so that pharmacists, for whatever the reason they're not doing it, those who aren't, uh, just kind of all are on the same page? Well, sure, absolutely. I mean, I can tell you that the American Pharmacists Association and the California Pharmacists Association have uh, done tremendous work to try to keep our members informed and pharmacists aware of what's going on and what the latest changes are in practice. We keep uh, sending that messaging out. Um, we do believe that uh, CDC um, can make their messaging clear uh, when new recommendations come out. Sometimes things get buried on the CDC's website and are not real easy to find. So, you know, there's probably an opportunity for more clear and uh, upfront communication when we have changes like this happen. But uh, we're all learning during this pandemic that uh, when we think we've communicated well enough, sometimes it's not well enough and we have to communicate even more. So there's always opportunities for improvement. And what I would just really encourage your listeners to do is that if they have a question, ask the pharmacist. Just make sure that you have those conversations with your pharmacist uh, and um, uh, they'll they'll do the best they can to make sure that they're protecting you. Dr. Dang, you got to feel for these people who come in, too, and we've heard some of these stories, and there's been reports on them. I mean, you're trying to be as safe as you can because, obviously, you're in more danger than, than somebody else who, who has a vaccine where it works better for them. I mean, these are not people who should be making multiple trips out to the pharmacies if they're crowded anyways. Absolutely. We want to try to minimize unnecessary trips, but we also want to try to minimize any unnecessary uh, vaccinations for individuals who don't need it. You know, as a pharmacist, my goal is always to give you the right amount of medications, or in this case, vaccine uh, that you need, and not to give you more to expose you to any potential unnecessary side effects that may result from that. Let me uh, shift for a minute uh, away from vaccines to these antiviral pills, if I can, because they were announced with, with great fanfare, first the Merck one and then the Pfizer one, which is supposedly a lot better. Uh, and a lot of people, we've had experts on the show saying that these were going to be game changes, but um, changers. But we've also had lots of doctors on the show uh, saying that their patients can't get them. What is the situation with these these pills? Either one of you gentlemen, who, whoever wants to tackle that one. Well, I, I'm happy to speak uh, to, to this from a national perspective. 
Um, it's Dr. Uh, Ho. Yes, of, go ahead. Yes, yeah, so one of the one of the frustrations that we've had at the national level with these is that um, uh, unlike the injectable monoclonal antibodies, uh, that you know when those were released to the market and COVID testing was released to the market and the COVID vaccine was released to the market. The Department of Health and Human Services immediately authorized pharmacists to be able to prescribe those agents and to be able to administer those agents. For some reason, when the oral uh, therapeutics to treat COVID came out, uh, HHS did not take the same action with the oral therapeutics and did not authorize pharmacists to prescribe those to make those more readily available in local communities. So we have two problems. We have a supply issue in that the manufacturers are not producing enough of the uh, antiviral, the oral antivirals to supply the need that's out there in the community. And then secondly, uh, the Department of Health and Human Services has not um, uh, given the same authority to pharmacists for these oral antivirals to prescribe them. And so that makes an additional hurdle that patients have to jump through to even find where these might be available. So is it just a hospital thing at this point? Or, or some doctors? Yeah, I think it depends on the community where you live and the state that you live in. Of course, uh, here in Southern California, uh, the medication may be shipped to a pharmacy, but you probably have to go to an emergency department or an urgent care uh, or a physician's office to get it prescribed. It's an extra step in the process. It's largely unnecessary. So is, is that being remedied? I mean, is, is a solution in the works or is everybody just kind of thrown up their their hands and go, OK, that's the way it is? Well, the American Pharmacists Association is meeting regularly with Food and Drug Administration officials to try to uh, get this resolved. And, and um, it's definitely a problem that does not yet have a solution, but we're working on it. Dr. Michael Hogue there, Dean of the School of Pharmacy at Loma Linda University, former president of the American Pharmacists Association. Also, Dr. Richard Dang, president of the California Pharmacists Association. You're listening to KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Actor Peter Dinklage from Game of Thrones recently put Disney on the defensive, went on Mark Maron's podcast, slamming the live-action remake of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Dinklage says Disney is still doing a story of seven dwarfs living in a cave together. He then said it would be better if the story was retold in a less offensive way. Disney put out a statement saying it's taking a different approach with these seven characters and has been consulting with members of the Little People community. With us now is Michelle Krause, Advocacy Director for Little People of America. Michelle, thanks for being with us. So does does Mr. Dinklage have a, a point, especially when it comes to Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs? The point uh, that we share and that we advocate for is that, you know, people with dwarfism should be fairly and accu- accurately represented. Um, and in a story like Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, you know, um, they are not uh, in any way. You know, we don't live in caves. We don't each have a adjective as a name. Um, we don't sing hi-ho, hi-ho uh, off the work to work we go. Um, we are people that do work, do have families, do have relationships, and, you know, this just points to a very archaic and um, not unprogressive lack of progress in respect to how little people are 
um, represented in media. We've seen Disney going and doing all these live action remakes. So I guess maybe people could have figured that this one was coming and they've been talked about it for some time. Was it surprising to you that they were going to try and make this again? Maybe this was one that they could just let be. Not surprising to me, but, but interesting that as Peter pointed out that um, Snow White is being played by a Latinx uh, actress um, when her name is Snow White. Um, and so they were thinking sort of how to be more culturally appropriate. Um, but I wonder why that didn't um, reach the, why that's not reaching, um, you know, how people with dwarfism are portrayed. Okay, so let, let's take the, the new movie that Disney is making off the table for a minute. What should happen, if anything, to the existing one? To the existing one? Yeah, the cartoon. Um, you know, there's many there's many portrayals of dwarfs as uh, fairy tale characters, but also uh, mystical characters, uh, characters with magic powers um, that we we're not you know we're not asking to eradicate. We're not asking to take it out of kind of the uh, entertainment landscape. Um, but what we are asking for is, um, but, you know, but we, we do want it kind of, uh, modernized, replaced or supplemented by more educationally sensitive and appropriate, um, stories. Okay. So then switch back to this new one. What do you think that would look like or could look like if they did this the right way. Yeah, it's hard. Um, I'm not as creative. We're not as creative as Disney, but I think that Disney is taking certainly the right approach in terms of um, talking with people, you know, uh, consulting with the disability community. Um, we are not uh, formally working with them, but certainly could uh, refer for them um, experts in this. I think talking to LP actors about how they want to be portrayed, um, what their choices would be in a role like that. Um, and they could come up with a whole different uh, creation of the story, you know, um, that really just separates and distinguishes between humans, people with dwarfism, and this uh, kind of fairy tale character. Michelle Krauss, Public Relations, a Little People of America. Michelle, thanks. Remember when bottles were glass? You would drop them, they'd shatter. Remember that? Uh, yeah. Yeah. They don't do that anymore. No, they just bounce around. Yeah, because they're all plastic. And beverage manufacturers, they shifted to plastic because they're cheaper and they don't shatter. But then lots of food items started being put into plastic, including, you know, healthy stuff like yogurt. But the uh, researchers out there are saying some of this might be interfering with our metabolism, something in the plastic. Bruce Blumberg is professor of developmental and cell biology at UC Irvine. He's written a book about this called the, uh, you're going to have to help me out with the word, uh, doctor, but uh, the subtitle is Why We Eat Less and Exercise More But Still Struggle to Lose Weight. The O-B-E-S-O-G-E-N. How do I say that? 
Obesogen. Obesogen effect. Okay. So take us through what uh, we know about uh, this kind of interference. It's coming from what? Some of these chemicals in this plastic that could uh, be working on our, our metabolism. It's not only plastic, but plastic is a, is a rich source of, of chemicals that can act as obesogens. They also more generally disrupt the function of the endocrine system. So lots of these chemicals are estrogens, which are associated with many adverse consequences in people, including uh, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, prostate cancer. And we showed probably 15, 16 years ago now that chemicals could trigger the development of fat cells. And that was a big surprise at the time. We didn't expect that, but we followed up that story and we were the ones who coined the word obesogen to describe chemicals that can make you fat. So how does this uh, actually in practice work? Uh, somebody, let's say, who drinks a lot of, uh, I don't know, diet, whatever, uh, and they're not in cans and they buy it in a, in a plastic bottle, does the plastic then leach into the, the beverage they're drinking and then over time their bodies are absorbing it and they're getting fat? Yes, that's the general way that, that we think it comes from plastic. And metal, metal cans are, you know, are, are aligned with plastics also, some of the same plastics, because aluminum corrodes very easily, so you have to coat it with something. Okay, so, so we're what, surrounded by it. <laughs> yeah. You could say, and many clinicians said, well, you know, you get fat because you eat too much and you exercise too little. But it turns out that there are pharmaceutical drugs that are prescribed to people that when you take them, you get fat as a side effect. Some of them are chemicals that activate a receptor we work on called, with a terrible name, PPR gamma. So chemicals that activate that receptor make you sensitive to insulin, which is a good thing, but they also make you fat, which is a bad thing. And there's quite a few others. So my argument is that if there are drugs that can have the consequence of making you fat, why wouldn't environmental chemicals that work through the same pathways give the same effect? And of we, course they do. We had thought, what, that uh, these chemicals were staying in the plastic. It wasn't getting into the yogurts or the diet soda, but, but of course exactly. it is. To some degree, yes. So is there a solution short of uh, not using any plastic material, which I would imagine at this stage of the game is going to be really hard? The solution is really multifold. So the first thing you need to do is to minimize plastic in your life. It's tough to get rid of, but you can minimize it. The second thing you need to do is start making your own food from fresh ingredients. And I don't mean you need to have a farm and grow your own food. I mean, you need to go to the market and go to the produce department and go to the meat department and buy fresh foods and make your meals. Don't buy things that are prepackaged, things that you don't know what's in there. There, there are ways that you can reduce your exposure to these kind of obesogenic and endocrine disrupting chemicals. And by the way, that food tastes better and is healthier for you. Although it's less convenient. That's <laughs> right. Yes. It's not as easy. So people don't want would, to do it. Yeah. Is this all plastics or certain types or chemicals in there? I mean, I, you ran, you know, the numbers on all these and you found some that you know, and you were able to identify, but there's also a whole bunch of others that, are having the same effects and those aren't in there. So they must also be, you know, components that, that lead to this effect too. Right. So the, the paper that you sent me that just came out was from a group. It's actually a German guy who's working in Norway named Martin Wagner. And Martin has over the years been taking 
plastic bottles and food containers and whatever and extracting chemicals from those and asking the question, number one, what chemicals are in here? And number two, what can they do to our biology? So a few years ago, he published that there were quite a number of estrogenic chemicals, things that activate the estrogen receptor. He published there were quite a lot that inactivated the testosterone receptor, which is a bad thing. So his most recent paper shows that there are a bunch of chemicals that can convert cells and culture into fat cells. Now, of course, that's cells and culture. That's not in people, but we don't have a single example yet of a chemical that can make a cell and culture become a fat cell that doesn't make animals fat. Uh, it, it, it still seems like it's going to be really difficult to avoid because you just mentioned, for example, if somebody were to listen to this and say, well, you know what, uh, I'm just not going to buy any beverage in a, a plastic bottle. But you just mentioned that even in aluminum cans, they have to coat the inside to stop corrosion with I, I'm gathering what you're saying. It's a kind of a plastic material. So how do you ever really know short of, you know, carrying everything from the supermarket home in your pocket that it isn't wrapped some way in plastic. Right, so the, the less time that the material you want to eat is in contact with plastic, the better off you are. But I, I wouldn't want you to get the impression that the, the liquid or the food inside the container is good and the plastic is bad. The plastic is not good, but sometimes the stuff in the container is worse. Sugar-sweetened beverages, <laughs> right? That's way worse for you than, than the container. You're going through That's my whole diet now. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're uh, going through sorry. my entire Only diet. <laughs> sugary things and yeah. don't cook for yourself. Yeah. And Long yeah. ago, I switched to uh, sparkling water and glass bottles. How do we sure feel? It's not perfect, but yeah. it's better. Better than better than the alternative. Uh, how do we feel about Tupperware? Tupperware is is uh, plastic, and I would not store foods in in any kind of plastic. I'm not picking on Tupperware particularly, but any kind of plastic. Glass and stainless steel is the way to go. And I don't know if you like the taste of food stored in plastic. I don't. And that taste that you detect, that plasticky taste, is the chemicals that came from the plastic into your food. Well, it is true that, that, that some beverages, they do seem to taste better in old glass bottles, but sometimes you kind of think you're just imagining it, but you're not. No, you're not. No, you're not. <laughs> and, and the paper by Martin shows very convincingly that you're not. All right. Bruce Blumberg, Professor of Developmental and uh, Cell Biology at UC Irvine's got the book, The Obesogen Effects, Why We Eat Less and Exercise More But Still Struggle to Lose Weight. Change all your eating habits. Um, more in-depth tomorrow.